0: As we open God's word, let's ask him to illuminate it for us. Let's pray, let's pray together. O oh Lord, your word is perfect, reviving the soul. Your testimony is sure, making the simple wise. Your precepts are right, rejoicing our hearts. Your commandments are pure, enlightening our eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Your rules are true and righteous altogether, They are more to be desired than fine gold and sweeter than honey. Teach that word to us now by your Spirit and show us Christ, we pray, in His name. Amen. Please be seated. And please do turn with me in God's Word to you, the book of Luke, chapter 18. Luke, chapter 18. We want to consider together uh, Jesus and his encounter with the rich young ruler, um, and also consider, use that as our text for helping us to understand Lord's Day 34 regarding the law of God. So Luke chapter 18, and our reading will be from verse 18 to verse 30. So Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 18, and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. And a ruler asked him, that is Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to inherit the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Um, Jesus has a very interesting encounter with this rich young ruler um, and maybe brought him up short by the first question that he asks. Why do you call me good? Um, Good was not a word that they threw around lightly uh, back then. Um, And it was because that's a word that was applied only to God. That certainly is the the recognition that Jesus makes when the rich young ruler says that. Why do you call me good? There is no one good except for God alone. Uh, You might think about our, our communion form. We always quote Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, That was the confession of the Old Testament church. We can also think of Psalm 100, verses 4 and 5. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Only God is good. So Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? Good. Um, I think that's an important starting point, because if this man is so free to apply terms that are unique for God to Jesus, then maybe he's willing to apply similar terms to himself. Uh, Maybe if he's willing to call Jesus good, he's also willing to call himself good. Um, And Jesus will, of course, press him on the law. And so I thought this would be a good text for us to consider in light of Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 34, which talks about the law of God and helps us to understand the law of God, because last time we talked about good works. Um, As we've been considering sanctification and the importance of good works in the life of God's people, we talked about the fact that those who God redeems, He also renews after the image of His Son. He redeems us so that we might do good works. Um, And if you remember our definition of good works that we've been using, good works are only those which are done out of true faith, conform to God's law, and are done for his glory. And so if we want to know what is truly good, we have to rightly understand God's law. Um, And that's what Jesus is going to do with the rich young ruler, probe whether he really understands God's law. Um, And it's important for us to understand God's law if we want to Know it, understand it, and try our best to live it out in this life, that we might serve our God in gratitude for all He's done for us. So we want to use this text to think about the law of God together. Um, We want to recognize that the Ten Commandments are a very helpful summary for us of what God's law requires, and so we want to think about three things tonight simply. What is God's law? How do we divide God's law? And what does God's law require in the first commandment? Uh, So we we have a lot that we want to accomplish in those things, but I think by God's grace, we can do that. Um, Because really, it's fairly easy to say, what is God's law? Um, It's the Ten Commandments. This is an easy one, boys and girls. one One of the catechism questions I liked growing up. What is the law of God? It's the Ten Commandments. Um, That's pretty simple. Now, the trick is remembering what all ten are, um, but you you can know that God's law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. They're a helpful summary of God's law. Question 92 just uses the Ten Commandments basically from Exodus 20 as a summary of what God's law requires, Um, and the Ten Commandments are a very helpful summary. Um, Now, maybe you haven't thought much about this, maybe you're not inclined to think much about this, but we're going to think about it, so get yourself ready. Um, We're going to think about why use this summary, right? We can use several summaries of the law. We can summarize the law in 10 commands um, as, as we have it in the 10 commandments. We can summarize the law in two commandments, Um, That that was the way we used the law this morning. We read the summary of God's law from Mark chapter 12, and Jesus summarizes the law in two commandments. Uh, You can even summarize the law in one commandment. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, That's a good summary of the law as well. So why do we use the Ten Commandments when we ask the question, what is the law of God? Why is it helpful for us to think in terms of the Ten Commandments? Well, one of the authors of the Catechism, Zacharias or Sinus, says, because they contain the summary of the moral laws which are scattered throughout the Scriptures in the Old and New Testament. Um, Imagine you had to sit down with a piece of paper and say, "What, What does God want us to do? How does God want us to live? And he had to try to, to go everywhere in scripture and write down where are all the various commands of what God says for us to do. It could take you a long time to do that. And what he's saying is God has helpfully gathered together for us in a helpful summary that's, that's detailed enough, but also concise enough that we can see all of the laws that God has given gathered together in one place for us that in those Ten Commandments, we have all the commandments of the moral law summarized for us so that we can see what God wants for our lives. Um, He went on, or Sinus went on to say, God repeated and declared to the church the entire doctrine and the true sense of his law in the Ten Commandments. And so they're a very helpful summary for us to understand what God wants for his people, what his will for our life is. Um, they're, they're helpfully summarized for us in the Ten Commandments. That's why we use that summary um, as, our, as our foundation for understanding God's law. And then we divide those commandments up into two groups. Um, so the, the law of God is the Ten Commandments. And how do we divide those commandments? Well, we divide them into two groups. That's what question 93 is talking about. The law can be divided into two tables. So question 93 says, how are these commandments divided into two tables? The first has four commandments teaching us how we should live in relation to God. The second has six commandments teaching us what we owe to our neighbor. Uh, That God not only gave us this helpful summary, but he also divided it for us. In a helpful way, so that we can see that part of his law pertains to how we are to live in relation to him and part of his law pertains into how we 're to live in relation to one another um, that we can think of the law in those two ways God divided it up for us in that way we 're always told when we 're told about the law coming to god 's people that it was divided into two tablets right we 're not the ones who divided it into two God divided it into two uh, God did that when he gave it to Moses. We read about that in Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy 4, uh, that the law was written on two tablets of stone. Uh, The law was divided, and Christ divides the law in two when he summarizes the law in the New Testament. We have those helpful divisions that our Lord gives us when he is put to the test, right? When people think they're going to trick him with a religious test, by saying, can you pick out from all over Scripture which is the most important commandment in the law? And imagine their surprise when without missing a beat, he says, the first and greatest commandment is, you might think, whoa, he has an answer to this question. And it's a really good answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. This is the first and great commandment. Um, It's such a great summary because he's quoting Deuteronomy six five. That's sort of the genius of his response to the teachers of the law, he responds with the law. He says that's the first and great commandment, and there's a second law that's like it. Jesus could have said to them, and you'll find it in Leviticus chapter nineteen, verse eighteen B You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You see, Christ himself divides it up for us helpfully and reminds us that that's how the law functions in the life of the Christian. It reminds us the duties that we owe to our God, how we're to live in relation to him, and it reminds us of the duties that we owe to our neighbor. And when we think about the law and when we think about our law-keeping, we have to deal with both of those realities. It does no good to only consider one table. You have to consider both tables. You have to live in relation to God and you have to live in relation to your neighbor. Do you see how coming to that division is so helpful for us understanding why the rich young ruler goes so wrong? Because he's put to the test according to the two tables of the law, right? Look how Jesus summarizes the law. Um, the rich young ruler does not seem to be answer, asking a sincere question when he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, Jesus has an advantage over us in that he knows the heart of the person asking the question, um, and I think he goes right to the heart of the matter. I don't think he thinks the man is asking a legitimate question. I think the man already knows what he thinks and already knows. We all met people like that, right? That they ask a question, but the way they really want to do is tell you what they already know. Um, they're not actually looking for information. They're trying to see if you agree with them on how they already think about something. I think that's what's going on with the rich young ruler. I think he, knows, he thinks he knows how you inherit eternal life. You inherit eternal life by keeping the law. And he's feeling pretty good about his law keeping. Um, and so Jesus puts him to the test, first using the second table of the law. You, you notice that? He says in verse 20, You know the commandments. And then what are the commandments that he lists? They all relate to that second table. They all relate to the duties you owe your neighbor. Right? Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. And what does he say? Well, that's good. All these I've kept from my youth. So he's doing pretty good with his law keeping. Right up into the point where Jesus decides to test him on his obedience to the first table of the law. And comes to him and says this. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Um, what, What part of the law is he being tested on there? Do you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength? He says, I love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus is saying, let's test you on the other part. Do you love me more than these? And you know, sometimes we we put it only in terms of what Jesus is asking him to give up. We ever do that in our minds, we think that what Jesus comes and says to him is, Sell everything you own and give it to the poor. That that's the extent of what he calls him to do. What does Jesus actually say to him? Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and I will give you treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. He's not just asking him to give something up, he's asking him to receive something better. Um, That's the test of the first table of the law that comes to him. How will he live in relation to God? God who is standing before him in the flesh. He was more right than he knew when he said, you are a good teacher. That only God is good and there is God standing in the flesh telling him to do something. That's a test of his law keeping, isn't it? That's a test of how he will live in relation to God. And so it's so sad to see his response that when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. It was too hard for him to exchange his earthly treasure for heavenly treasure. It was too hard for him to live in relation to God and to love him with his whole heart and mind and soul and strength. You see how splitting the commandments into these duties can help highlight for us where the law stands and where our law-keeping stands? Because he was so convinced of his law-keeping. Um, now, the Calvinists and all of us, the Reformed and all of us want to say, no, he didn't keep the law from his youth. I know he didn't. Okay, we all know that. Jesus knew that too. Let's not get hung up on that point. What Jesus is saying, of course, is that even if that were true, you still feel, you've still failed to keep the whole law. Even if you've loved your neighbor, you haven't loved your God. Um, and it's a reminder to us, isn't it, that partial law keeping is of no good. If we keep part of the law, we still go away sad. We still go away without eternal life and without following Jesus. Keeping part of the law is not the way to eternal life. God's word says, if you want life according to the law, you have to keep all of it all the time without fail. As we read this morning, it's not hearers of the law, it's doers that will be justified. And we know that nobody can do that. We have to seek for a righteousness that's not our own, that comes from Christ and his perfect law-keeping. Um, we always have to keep that in mind and never let, our, let ourselves think. Um, but of course, we're not talking about the law in terms of our justification here, right? We're talking about the law in terms of our sanctification. Uh, we're not right with God by our law-keeping, but because we are right with God, we keep the law. That's how we look at the law. That's how we consider the law together. So it's important for us to divide the law so that we might rightly understand it and understand the duties that we owe to God and how we are to live. And the fact that we're looking at the law in that sense, through that framework, as our response of gratitude, comes to us clearly when we consider how the law of God begins. Where does God begin His law? Um, With commandments? Or with another important statement before the law begins? Look at that summary of the Ten Commandments in your, uh, in your catechism, if it's still open, or think about it in your mind. Where does God begin with his people? I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I am the Lord your God. We always, whenever we see Lord in all capital letters, we have to remember that that's God's covenant special name. Um, And whenever we see that, it's important. I'll never forget an experience I had as in, in early days of seminary preaching, and I preached a sermon at the Escondido URC, and I met with Dr. Hal Jones to talk about the sermon and get his feedback on it after I preached it, and I remember going into his office, and he gave me some helpful tips about my preaching, and then he said to me, you know, there's one word in your text that you should have made more of, and I thought I could tell you what that word is, but I think it'll be more helpful if you can figure out what's the one word in your text that you should have made more of. Um, and maybe you can imagine sitting there and squirming and thinking, there were a lot of words in that text. I'm not sure I know which one. And, you know, you do the, the kind of thing you do as a kid trying to answer Sunday school questions, right? Jesus, (laughs) you know, God. Um, and what it was, was the Lord. Um, I had preached on Rahab and she sought protection under the name of the Lord. And he said, whenever you see that name, it's important. It's God's special name. It's God's covenant name. It reminds us that his people know him in a way that no one else knows him. That it said something when Rahab asked for the protection, not just of God or the God of the Hebrews, but of the Lord. That means something. And when God comes to his people before he gives his law and says to them, I am the Lord, your God. He's reminding them of that rich covenant relationship that they have with him. Particularly in this context, he's reminding them that when they were slaves in Egypt, it was the Lord who looked upon their condition and saw what was afflicting them. It was the Lord who remembered the promise that he'd made to Abraham and came to rescue them. That was the whole reason the Lord had come, because he was the Lord and he was their God. And when this law was given to them, they had been brought out of slavery in Egypt. That iron furnace, that house of bondage. The word came to them from their covenant God as a redeemed people who'd been bought out of slavery, who'd been bought out of servitude. And God came to them and didn't just say, I'm God and I'm owed obedience came to them and said, I'm your covenant God who redeemed you. Therefore, have no other gods before me. Right? It's important for us to remember that this is the law of gratitude. It was the law of gratitude when it was first given. It was to be the guide of a a redeemed people to hear how they live with the God who redeemed them, how they could serve the God who set them free. And if that was true of people who've been redeemed from slavery in Egypt, how much more true is it for people who have been bought out of slavery to the devil? Who were in bondage not just to to a foreign power, but were in bondage to sin and death and hell, and who were redeemed. And who were redeemed not with gold or silver, but as the Apostle Peter says, with the precious blood of Christ. Christ. As of a lamb without blemish or spot. It's something far more precious that we've been bought out of. And it's in gratitude for that salvation that the law of God comes to us and says, This is how you please your Redeemer God. This is how you serve him. This is how you show that you love him. We owe him this obedience, but not just as a bare duty. But as the way to please the one who has set us free by the death and the blood of his son. That's how the word comes to us. And then it's no surprise then that what is the first commandment? Don't have any other gods before me. Wouldn't it be a foolish thing to put someone else before the God who redeemed you, who bore all the expense, who bore all the offense? who comes and provides the most precious thing he has to provide for your sake, isn't it foolish to trust in someone else? God wants us to trust in him. If the first table of the law talks to us about the duties that we owe to God, how we're to live in relation to him, the first law is you shall have no other gods before me. Don't put your trust and hope in anything besides the Lord. One of the helpful ways that the catechism unfolds the law of God is by reminding us over and over again, whenever the law comes to us, it tells us the things that we need to put on and the things that we need to put off. Um, It always tells us the evil that's to be gotten rid of and the godliness that's to be put on. It always comes to us in that positive and negative sense, in that affirmative and the negative. What are we to do and what are we not to do? We are to put things off and we are to put other things on. So what what is the evil that the catechism tells us the first commandment is telling us to put off? Well, it's that I, not wanting to endanger my own salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry, sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayer to saints or other creatures. What is that saying to us? It's saying don't seek anything other than God. God. Don't seek anything other than God. There's no other helper. There's no one else to appeal to. And sometimes people do that um, in, their, in their frustration and their desires for the things that they think they need. They sort of cast about and will call on anybody who will do. I right? think of Jonah when he's on the boat and it's being rocked by the waves and the sailors are all worried about what's happening. And so they, they all start calling out to their God, right? Everybody's got a God. Everybody start praying. We'll try this guy, and we'll try this guy and we'll try this, and we'll just try to hit on him until we get one God who will hear us. And you remember that's why they woke Jonah up. Said, Maybe you have a God we've left out. Why don't you call on your God? Um, who, what God do you serve? Where are you from? And remember what he says I, I'm a Hebrew, I serve the God who made the heavens and the earth. And they say, okay, then we're really in trouble. (laughs) Because if your God is in control of everything, then he must be the one who's mad. That's why none of our gods are working. So you call out to your God. right? And and that's still the way the world works. It's sort of, we have pragmatic solutions to everything. You'll call out or do whatever. Um, And maybe we read this and say, come on, really sorcery, superstitious rites? I mean, get with the times here. It's the 21st century. People aren't doing that. You ever driven by a palm reader? Um, You ever heard people talk about, you know, their astrological sign and what that means or see people who pray to saints and go to festivals? I mean, these things are all very real. And what it all boils down to is trusting something other than God. And the catechism rightly says to do that is to endanger your salvation. That's what happened when the rich young ruler chose his money over Christ. He endangered his salvation. He wanted to inherit eternal life, but he didn't serve the one who could have given him eternal life. Um, That's what this, this commandment is reminding us of. Not to be like those who seek everything but God, but to seek the Lord and him only to put off any temptation to follow something else and to follow only our God. If we're to put off that evil vice of trusting other things, what is the the godly virtue that we're to put on? Well, the catechism beautifully summarizes it. That I rightly know the only true God. Trust him alone and look to God for every good thing humbly and patiently. And love, fear, and honor him with all my heart. In short, that I renounce all created things rather than go against God's will in any way. It's a beautiful statement. Um, there, there's too much for us to unpack in the time we have left, in case you're worried that we're going to try. Um, but it's all worth noting what, what we begin with. It's the trust, the, the Redeemer God. He's the one who's provided for us the thing we needed the most, which was redemption, we always have to come back, I think, to what Paul says in Romans 8 when he says, He's given you His Son. If He's given us His Son, how will He not also with Him give us all things? Right? It's the argument from the greater to the lesser. He's given you the biggest thing you need and the most valuable thing He has. If he's already met your biggest need with the most valuable thing he has, you think he won't meet your lesser needs with less valuable things? Right, that was what Jesus said when he came and said, we're worrying about food and clothing. Why are we worrying about those things? When we needed to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ, God clothed us. Is he not going to give us clothes to wear, really? Really? When we needed food, He gave us His Son as food and drink to life eternal. You think He's not going to give us food and drink? Really? Your Father knows what you need. There's no reason to trust in anyone else. Right? That was the tragedy of the wilderness generation. That's the tragedy of how Psalm 95 ended Maybe you noticed that when we were singing it, that reference to that oath God made that they would never enter his rest. Because despite all the ways he'd provided for them, they still at the end of the day said, I'm not sure we can trust this God. That was the real tragedy of the wilderness generation. And on the threshold of the promised land, they said, let's leave and go back. We've had it with him. You just can't depend on Him. You just can't trust Him. Right? That's the tragedy. And we never want to repeat that. We want to trust Him. That doesn't mean that we will live blessed lives all the time, that we'll never be called to do anything hard. Um, it was a hard thing to say to someone who's extremely rich, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. That was not an easy thing to do. Um, We're not always called to do easy things in the service of the Lord. We talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And going into the fiery furnace last time. That was a hard choice they were given. Um, But they decided that they would wait humbly and patiently in the Lord. That they would love Him, and that they would fear Him, and that they would honor Him with their heart and with their soul. And they decided that even if it cost them their lives and their positions, that it was worth it for the sake of walking with their Lord. No one has ever trusted the Lord and regretted it. No one has ever given to follow Him and regretted it. Because those who put their trust in Him will not be put to shame. Um, And so the law is reminding us Not to turn to other things, not to trust in other things. And that's really what idolatry is. It's, as question 95 says, it's having or inventing something in which one trusts in the place of or alongside of the only true God who's revealed himself in his word. Idolatry at its core is a problem of trust. And I think it's so good to say it's the thing we trust in instead of God or the thing we build alongside of God. Um, there, there can be deadly danger in the word and. I trust God and I trust me. Um, there's danger in that. And idolatry can be anything that we build in our own minds and in our hearts or even with our hands that becomes the thing in which we trust. Um, that's what idolatry is at its core, trusting something other than God. And John Calvin was absolutely right when he famously said, And our hearts are idol factories. Our hearts are perpetual idol forges. They're always cranking them out um, in every kind of way, shape, or form. And he said, You know, the real tragedy is, of that is when we make gods, we make them with our own limitations we make them with our own pettiness we make them with our own problems right if you've ever read like greek mythology you look and say these gods are a bunch of creeps um, and why you know that's my commentary on all of classical mythology these gods are kind of creeps it's a very highbrow approach right um, but when we read it we say these gods are kind of creeps well why are they kind of creeps because they were made in the image of people that are kind of creeps the gods we make have our own limitations. The gods we make have our own capacities. And that's really the evil of idolatry. We, as broken images of God, make broken images in our own image, with our own problems, with our own shortcomings. John Calvin said, Man's mind, full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God according to his own capacity. His mind conceives an unreality and an empty appearance as God. Um, And then man tries to express in his work the sort of God he has inwardly conceived. Therefore, the mind begets an idol and the hand gives it birth. Um, We see that all over our culture when, when when someone's asked the question, what is God like? And they say, well, I think God is like this. I think God is love. I think God would never come and tell me to be unhappy. And what what are you doing? You're making an idol and you're saying, you know who God is? He's exactly who I want him to be. He's exactly the God I would want if I were building a God who looked like me. He's a God who doesn't require anything of me, who never challenges me, who lets me be me and be damned. Um, And we have a true God who says, I am not going to be like you, but I will make you like me, and make you be saved. And so we're not to make things that we trust in. Besides, Jonah came to a hard reality. He had time to think when he was in the belly of the whale. He had time to think about those prayers that were offered to all those other gods. Um, and he says in Jonah chapter 2, verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Vain idols is another way of saying empty nothings. Those who pay regard to empty nothings forsake their hope of steadfast love. Do we want eternal life? That's what the rich young ruler wanted. Do we want eternal life? If we seek it anywhere other than in Jesus Christ, we will forsake our hope of steadfast love. We have to seek it in the Lord. And when we do that, we realize we've come to the one who's shown himself to be eminently trustworthy, who has already been a redeemer. Right? We have a great advantage living on this side of the cross. I'll end with this. We have a great advantage living on this side of the cross. Why? Why? Because we already see what God has done for us. We already see how he did not spare his own son, but gave him for us. We see, we've seen the love of the Father expressed in the sacrifice of the Son. And we have the Spirit indwelling us to always remind us of what we have. And what we will have on account of him. And so when the law comes to us and says, you shall have no other gods before me, our response would be, of course. Why would I seek for another God? I'll trust this God. And when things aren't going well, I will humbly and patiently wait until he turns things around. Because we know that all things work for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. No one has ever trusted God in vain. So let us continue to put our hope and trust in him and be willing to give up the things of this world that we might maintain the hope of steadfast love and in his time inherit eternal life. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your law. We thank you for its clear teaching. We confess that we are often guilty of making our own idols and clinging to the things of this life instead of giving them up to follow you. We help We hope that you would pray, we pray that you would help us more and more to put off those things in which we tend to put our trust, the idols of our own imagination who are at the end empty nothings who cannot help us and are made in our petty image and in our petty capacities. May we instead look to you, who are not in our image, but in whose image we've been made, who is restoring that image after the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may we think about what you've already done for us and see that we don't have any cause not to trust you to give us all that we need. And so may we look to you alone and may we be willing to give up all else to obtain life and Christ. And may you fill us with that assurance and hope that no one has ever trusted in Christ and been put to shame. Help us to serve you and you alone with all of our hearts and all of our souls and all of our minds and all of our strength and help us to love our neighbors as ourselves, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.